Welcome. This episode of Inside the Genome is a recent recording of Myriad Oncology Live, a webinar hosted by me, Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs at Myriad Oncology. The opinions and views expressed in this recording do not necessarily represent those of Myriad Genetics or its affiliates. To participate in a future recording, please visit Myriad Oncology for a list of dates, times, and subjects. I look forward to exploring the world of genetics with you all. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Myriad Oncology Live. <clears throat> um, I am TJ Slavin, Dr. Slavin. Um, I see we're a little smaller audience, but I think we'll just uh, we'll kick it off. I didn't mean to stop sharing my screen, though, so I'm going to re reshare my screen really quick so I can go through a little housekeeping. So uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, I assume, yeah, we'll get probably more people joining over a little bit of time. Uh, but Housekeeping, I mean, if this is your first time, yes, you can ask literally anything you want. These are theme-based uh, discussions, totally open door. Uh, whatever is on your mind, feel free to ask. Uh, we do try to theme-base them. Uh, today's is really talking about tumor normal testing uh, for treatment. Uh, so if you have questions, uh, we'll, we'll go through uh, different things. But yeah, feel free to derail the conversation, ask whatever <laughs> is on your mind, and uh, we can hopefully get it answered. Uh, we also have... Um, uh, next week, we're actually on a break week, and then coming back May 4th, we're going to talk about hereditary cancer in the LGBTQA plus community. Um, and then uh, the schedule is built out into July at this point, um, but uh, it is not yet posted. So uh, hopefully those can get posted pretty soon. I need to uh, write a note to myself to hopefully get those up. Um, and then also, um, before I forget, which I did last time <laughs> until the very end, uh, we do uh, record these now just for people that can't make them. Um, so, you know, if that plays into, you know, your willingness to speak, uh, you know, I apologize. You can always send chats to uh, Shelly Cummings, who is on, and she can read any questions that uh, uh, anyone may have. And I don't think any of them are, are actually posted yet, but and I don't even know where we're going to post them. We'll probably put them on the education page, ultimately, of uh, um, Myriad uh, Oncology, um, just for any future reference. And, um, and then we've been doing some podcasts. Um, so if people are looking for fun, uh, some people are starting their commute back to work, on, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it. Um, but we've, uh, you know, we had a uh, raising awareness for colorectal cancer. We just uh, proofed out uh, another two, just did a really good podcast with uh, Karen Hurley, who uh, also I think will be on our, uh, from the Cleveland Clinic, who I think will also be on our uh, uh, LGBTQA plus uh, um, webinar in a few weeks. Um, so yeah, these are, these are all up and uh, keeps growing. Um, all right. So let me... Uh, up there really quick. Um, make sure there's no questions just to start, but I did want to show, um, oh, and actually let me, let me take a step back. Uh, we have a special guest today uh, as well. Um, and uh, I have not met you, Kristen. I just saw you on. I didn't know if you were going to be able to make the first half or the last half. Um, uh, and I, so if, if you want to unmute yourself, we can absolutely work around your schedule. So if, if you have time now, we can just uh, jump into Sure. That's great. I appreciate that. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. This is great. 
Thank you for inviting me. And actually I, I finished in clinic early, so I can go anytime. Oh, but fantastic. since I am talking, um, yeah, why don't we Diana start with, reached uh, out. Yeah. yeah. Asking me just to describe my role a little bit, um, with Aurora's oncology precision medicine program, and then just briefly summarize some data we presented last fall at NSGC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do have a couple slides. I don't know if I have the capability. Yeah, absolutely. You should to be able to share. share. Um, if you look at the bottom. Yep. Let me just try that. Yep. Great. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. And it's up to you. I, it's if you want to put it in presenter mode, you can, um, um, but you don't have to. I mean, this okay. this is fine. Okay, I'm well, I was trying to do that, but it's giving me a sometimes error a little finicky. There. Yeah. I, yeah. Sorry this about that. Oh no, no. Okay, let me um, just move <clears throat> the video here. I don't know why that's not working. That would be ideal, but okay, we'll just move forward anyway. Yeah, this is completely fine. Um, my name is Kristen. I'm a senior genetic counselor with Advocate Aurora Health. I've been with Advocate since August of 2018, um, and I primarily practice as a clinical genetic counselor, provide cancer genetic counseling, but I'm also the representative, if you will, to our oncology precision medicine program. Um, So as part of that, I am part of the team that reviews all of the somatic test results that are done throughout the Aurora system. Um, So I just wanted to review a little bit of information about our process and then about the um, data we presented. I have to get back to the Zoom call because it's not working for me to Share. Oh, you can't. Uh, yeah, maybe I can't advance the slides. <clears throat> or maybe it's that enable content uh, thing that was popped up in the uh, PowerPoint might be preventing. Yeah. Let me. I don't know why it's doing that. That's a bummer. Um, yeah, you can try to reshare. Sometimes that fixes it. I'm getting it even when I'm in PowerPoint. It's not letting me click on. Yeah, anything. it's probably that. Do you see that enable? You had some error message at the top. Yeah, I do. And I tried to enable the content and I it's, that's not hmm. working. So um, let me just try one more time to share, but Oh, do you have windows open in the background? I do. Yeah, maybe close those other windows out may help. Okay. Because I think that's what that uh, little error message is saying. Okay. Maybe let me play with this and restart. I don't know if you want to talk for a little bit and I can come back after I close everything out and restart the PowerPoint. Sure. And I do have some, you know, the reason I, I, uh, you know, brought you up was I had some slides from, um, I think your NSGC talk and I'm happy to share those. Honestly, I can't even remember where I got those from. <laughs> I was just looking in the, the folder. I put good things to talk about uh, on these uh, webinars and folders. And uh, apparently in, yeah, sometime last year, or I don't know, a couple months ago, I put your talk in um, my folder. Do you want me to pull that up? Um, it's yeah. probably the same slides. It's very similar. very similar. I cut it down some and, and oh, okay. took out the timings. Um, and I was going to show our dashboard, but I, PowerPoint is just completely frozen. I don't know what the yeah. problem is. I can't you close can, out of if it. You can email them to me and I can load them up if you want to try that, uh, Kristen. Okay. Let me try that, Shelly. Not, not my perspectives email. Yeah. Let me... Um, <laughs> 
What is the yeah, Shelly? Shelly's our tech whiz on uh, uh, at Myriad. That is not true. S C U M M I N G, no S at the end. No at S. Myriad, at Myriad.com. Okay. Yeah, and then in the interim, uh, I'll um, you know, for those on uh, the line, I, I do want to talk about this. Uh, well, if since you have time, we can always uh, yeah come back once that gets worked on. But, but let me share uh, this because this was another good paper. If uh, people have not seen it, <clears throat> um, I don't know if people are familiar. Can you, everybody see my screen? Yes. Okay. Getting nod. So. I think this is a great paper. So uh, this is uh, my buddy, Steve Lincoln over at Invitae uh, and friends. And uh, they put together a nice paper that was in, um, uh, what was this in JAMA Open Network uh, last year. Um, let me see when it was actually published. Yeah, October of uh, 2020. Uh, I don't know who on the call is familiar with it, but um, it's, it's a nice paper kind of getting at uh, the, tumor normal space. And so in a nutshell, what they did was they said, okay, they just, you know, kind of did a descriptive analysis. Um, so just reported out data on people sending in um, cases that um, already, so on the TRF, they wrote, you know, something was in this person's uh, tumor, you know, can you look for it in the germline? And really, uh, using any sort of germline test, then they reported what they found. And so when I say any report, you know, type of germline test, it could be anything from like the standard, you know, 40 gene panel to single site testing to larger panel, whatever, they didn't uh, get specific uh, or restrict anything. Um, and the results are pretty interesting. And, and uh, you know, Here's the kind of like table one characteristics. I mean, it was kind of split, uh, uh, male, female, you know, kind of standard US breakdown for the most part of uh, self reported race and ethnicity. Um, you know, these people had cancer, uh, which is, you know, so they were found to have something on a somatic report. Uh, so that was how you got included in the study. So everybody had some type of cancer. You know, some people had multiple primaries. Uh, and then you see kind of the breakdown of the age of diagnosis, you know, when the germline test was uh, done, you know, number of genes. So they did write out, you know, some, a lot of people just had single site most likely, or, you know, a very small subset of genes. Uh, but yeah, some people had uh, larger panels and <clears throat> this is kind of starting to look at some of the data. So, um, you know, what this is, it's, and it's all comer cancer. So it's, you know, here's all these different cancer types and what do we, what do we see? So, you know, when it comes to the germline findings. So again, these are people, so you can read this as, you know, of people with the APC uh, uh, tumor mutation reported on a TRF. Uh, so um, this is uh, uh, 112 people had APC written. And APC is a common gene in certain cancers. You know, you'll see it a lot in colon, other types of cancers. Um, you know, mutate in the tumor. Uh, a lot of times it's a passenger, not so much a driver, but I think we're still trying to understand uh, its role. Uh, only 2% of the time, if you had it in your tumor, uh, was it found in somebody's germline. Um, so that's kind of how you read this chart. And then you can kind of look through the rest of these. And so there's some that really jump out. So, you know, X and two here, is the flip side of that, which is, you know, it's not really a common tumor mutation. Uh, and the people that 
had it in their tumor of those two people that had it in their tumor, both had the axon two uh, variant in their germline. Um, and these are pathogenic variants. And so BRCA one and two, I mean, which a lot of people are probably uh, ears up about, I mean, that's, you know, was about 40% here. So that's interesting. I mean, you know, so overall, I mean, if you had to to, if you find a BRCA1 or 2 mutation in a tumor, actually a lot of times then it's uh, not germline. However, you know, so 60% of the time you could think it's, you know, not germline. However, a good chunk of the time it actually is germline. Um, and yeah, you can just kind of, you know, look through all this. So it was, it's an interesting um, table in itself. I mean, MITF, you know, high germline rate. So, I mean, you know, a quick way to look at this is, you know, what are the genes with the really high germline rates? I mean, you know, check two, you know, again, not the most common tumor mutation, uh, but, you know, we all know 1100 del C, very common. So, you know, and other check two mutations, you know, 0.5 to 1% um, of the population, uh, especially Europeans. And then MITF, um, you know, I'm assuming this was a lot of the E308K, um, you know, variants, um, you know, you see here most of the time, yeah, uh, it's in the germline. Uh, PALB2, this one was, I felt pretty interesting. Um, um, you know, this is almost more interesting to me than BRCA1 and 2 in a sense, because, you know, it shows that, yeah, if you find a PALB2 mutation in anything, you know, it's a very high likelihood that it's germline. So that's pretty shocking, actually, to find it 64 times on reports, and then 46 uh, of those, so 72%, actually, it was in the germline. Um, you know, also the, uh, the uh, succin AD hydrogenase uh, complex genes, uh, that's pretty high, you know, 50%. So again, you know, probably rare to have mutations overall in the tumor, um, you know, and these mutations tend to be in more neuroendocrine and paraganglioma type tumors. And then when you see them, yeah, it's pretty high likelihood to be germline. So rat 51 CND, look at that. I mean, you know, that's interesting, very rare, um, tumor mutations, uh, which is what we've been seeing with our, um, you know, um, uh, pharma trials and things, uh, uh, looking at tumors, uh, we've been seeing the same. I mean, you just don't see these mutated that often. I mean, they're a common homologous recombination. Uh, repair gene. Um, and yeah, a lot of times uh, it's due, you know, there's uh, germline mutation. So I'll, I'll stop there for any questions. Uh, I, there's a couple other really interesting figures and tables that I can walk through. And I can also bounce back to this. I don't know, Shelly, do you have uh, Kristen's? I have it. And then she was, yeah, she was also able to uh, we started on her end, so maybe we can flip back to her. To yeah, why don't we do that? And then I'll come back to this uh, to close it yeah. out. And if it doesn't work on her end, I have them. So we've got nothing yeah. here. Great, thank you. Let's try again. Now it seems to be working. Can you see it now? I do not. Are you sharing your screen? Oh. Um, let me. Here we go. There you go. How about that? Great. Yeah, okay. perfect. Wonderful. Um, so as I was saying, I'm part of the precision medicine team and at Aurora, all of the somatic testing that's done, at least the large scale genomic profiling tests 
um, that we send out are ordered through a centralized ordering process, uh, which allows the OPM team and pathology to work together to find the best sample, order the best test, and then all the results come back to a centralized location. So we actually can track a lot of metrics that way and make sure that we're reviewing all of the genomic profiling that's being done within the system. So that's um, something that's reviewed by one of our pharmacists and by myself. And then some of that's done administratively if there's things that are straightforward or if there's a report where there's no findings, uh, we just make our recommendations back to the physician. But if there's anything interesting to discuss or if there's multiple findings and we wanna talk about sequencing or you know things like that, then we bring that to our weekly molecular tumor board and discuss those more interesting or complicated cases every week on Friday morning. So, my role really is specifically related to any potential germline findings. I review every patient that comes through the precision medicine group. Um, and I do a basic chart review, looking at the diagnosis, any reported family history to try to capture those patients who may qualify for germline testing that haven't yet been referred. But then I also do review those somatic test results, looking for any findings that we suspect maybe germline, whether it's due to the allele frequency or the phenotype or some, you know, founder mutations that show up, right? We see a lot of check two variants that I can pretty much guarantee will be germline findings just by looking at them. Um, so I review all of that and then track those recommendations, make the recommendation back to the physician, track those in a real-time spreadsheet. Um, so this is just an example. These are some of our metrics from 2021 thus far, and this does need to be updated a little bit since we're now well into April, um, but it just kind of shows we keep track of the number of cases reviewed, why we're recommending referral for a patient, whether it's due to their history, their family history, or the test result, or all of the above if they've been referred, if they've been seen. Um, and then I think what's interesting is for those who are referred based on some sort of somatic finding, uh, what are the most common reasons that I'm recommending the patient see a genetic counselor? And it's not unexpected, as you can see in that chart there. The top reasons are things that we might expect, BRCA genes, ATM, CHECK2. Um, so, you know, those, those sort of fit with why patients should be coming to see us anyways. Um, and then this has evolved over time. We used to just kind of track the number of patients and whether they were referred and maybe why. And then we started really trying to track the test results themselves and comparing the somatic and germline findings, looking at concordant and discordant results. Um, and that is essentially what prompted the data we presented last year. Um, based on all of the patients reviewed in 2019, we were looking at those um, germline and somatic results and trying to make some comparisons. So the purpose of that really was determining how often the patients had a germline finding that was not reported on the tumor test, and then exploring, you know, the trends among those results. Um, and this could be germline findings of any variety. We, we made the decision up front that anything reported on a germline report that was not reported on the somatic report would be considered a discordant result, although we know some of those variants of uncertain significance may not have clinical implications. But just for simplicity's sake, that's how we decided to categorize things. Um, and then there's somatic findings where we were suspicious. They may be germline in origin, um, but then upon doing the germline testing, we did not confirm them in the germline. So again, you know, some of those, it was maybe just a poor judgment call and they're truly somatic findings, um, but kind of tracking when something didn't fit quite what we were expecting to find. 
So again, this is um, our data from 2019. And in that year's time, there were 677 tests that were performed. Um, 202 patients had both tumor and germline test results to compare in order to allow us to look at this. Um, so that was then the population that we used for this study. And among those 202 patients, there were 55 discordant results in 49 unique patients. So about a quarter of the cases had some sort of finding discordant for some reason that we wanted to look into a bit further. So if we break it down, those 55 discordant results, there were 14 where the gene simply wasn't analyzed by both tests. So we found something on one test, not on the other, because we didn't look. And so obviously that's a little difficult to determine whether that comparison is really accurate or fair because the gene wasn't assessed by both tests in the same way. There were 26 um, cases where there was a germline finding that was not identified, or at least not reported, I should say, on the somatic test itself. And then um, the remaining cases, 15 cases where there was a somatic finding that we were interested in, we thought might be germline recommended confirmatory testing, but then it wasn't ultimately confirmed by germline testing. Of these, then I really wanted to step back and say, okay, but which ones might have clinical implications? So which ones were classified as likely pathogenic or pathogenic and ultimately might have some treatment or screening implications for the patient or family members? And there were 14 total um, that were classified as pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants that we went on to look at. So this just shows of those 14 discordant results that were pathogenic or likely pathogenic, which genes um, were involved. And again, this sort of fits with the reasons we were recommending referral, genes that we would expect to find. Um, about a third was, was due to BRCA1 and 2, about a third to CHECK2, and then a variety of other genes made up the remainder. But I did think what was interesting here is that these are very, you know, moderate to high penetrance, actionable genes. It's not that we were identifying um, a lot of carriers, right, like MSH3 carriers or MUTYH carriers, these were truly genes where, you know, finding one pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant might have implications. As far as the type of variant that was identified, I listed them here. Um, and these are not unexpected at all. I think this makes perfect sense to all of the genetic counselors who looked at this data. We know that somatic testing is not optimized to detect large deletions, duplications, rearrangements, um, depending on the coverage, right? Some intronic or splice variants um, may not be reported. And so this really fits with that. But I think it was helpful to us to try to give some examples to our referring physicians about why the somatic testing does not necessarily replace the germline testing because they're not equivalent. They're not always looking for the same thing. And so there are pathogenic mutations that may be missed if we don't do both. So Kristen, these are the, these are the missed only then? These are the missed, correct. Yeah. These were yeah. germline mm -hmm. variants that were identified that were not mm -hmm. reported on yeah. the somatic test. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The patient population again was all comers. Um, so all patients who had had some sort of somatic test and then germline test that we could compare it to, correct? And it's across all tumor types. Uh, the vast majority of patients were stage four or metastatic disease, but we did, I mean, there were patients across all stages. 
Yeah, it was really interesting. And like you said, I mean, completely <laughs> shows nicely the, the need for copy number variation and, you know, going into introns and things like that. Absolutely. Which, you know, we discuss, I feel like weekly at tumor board, right? Because yeah. some physicians totally understand that and others are like, well, but I did this test. Isn't that good enough? You know, we would have expected mm -hmm. to find something if it was there. Um, so this shows again, about a quarter of uh, the discordant results involved a germline pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant. So something, you know, that was actionable that would have been reported when the germline testing was done. Overall in our population of patients, this means that about 7% had a germline finding that would have been missed um, if we just relied on that tumor testing. About a third because the gene wasn't included on that somatic panel, um, and then about two thirds because the variant was not detected. Again, looking at the genes that were involved, these were actionable findings. Some of these genes have treatment implications. Certainly many of them have implications for screening, prevention strategies within the family overall. Um, and then this is just like the tagline. Like I said, I feel this comes up every week and we're still trying to convince people, um, but tumor testing certainly has value. We are big proponents of that, um, but it's not a replacement for germline testing. And there are things that may be missed. And so it is important to make sure we're doing both types of testing whenever we're concerned about a hereditary cancer syndrome. Yeah, no, that's excellent. You know, if anyone has any questions. No, it's, you know, and I've, um, yeah, there's, there's multiple reasons. I mean, missing is one. I mean, reclassifications is another big one. So, you know, not that all labs that do germline testing do reclassifications. So, you know, good to use labs that do reclassifications, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, actively. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's one that, yeah, I don't know of honestly any somatic lab <clears throat> that's uh, doing reclassifications over time. So they're not really, you know, invested in the life cycle of that patient is kind of the way I would tend to think about it. Um, yeah. And you, you pointed out the rearrangements. I mean, complex things like Bolin inversion and MSH2. I mean, you know, the pseudogene and PMS2. These are all uh, very difficult things that you have to have a lot of expertise. Uh, and then just variant calling is a big one. You know, um, you know, you know, if you're calling things with uh, germline, I mean, you're usually using ACMG, you know, type algorithm. Um, and if you're calling tumor, a lot of people might not know. I mean, it is a different calling uh, through AMP uh, criteria generally, uh, AMP, uh, which is also in conjunction with uh, ACMG, but it's a different rule calling. So there's some nuances. Um, and yeah, there's, uh, you know, and my mind's changed over, over the years on this, but I, I don't know, people may remember, I mean, when, when tumor testing first kind of hit, uh, um, I would say there was this weird uh, dichotomy of, of, uh, well, tumor testing is totally different than germline. You know, it was, it was strange. It was like two years where people were kind of like treating them as a hundred percent different in variant classification, uh, where, you know, uh, even if something was known, you know, a known TP53 mutation, um, in a, in Lee-Fermini syndrome, if it was found in the tumor, people would say, oh, you know, we don't know what that means because, you know, it could have different connotations, things like that. And that, that, those worlds have definitely merged over the last, um, you know, 15 years or so since all this has been out. So now I think it's, uh, it's, it's nice to see that. Yeah. I mean, if things are hot spots, I mean, it, you know, it's, you see them in the germline, I think there's way more cohesiveness to the variant calling in general between uh, tumor and germline. No, that's really good work. So what are you going to do with all of this? Are you uh, planning to 
That's a great question. Um, well, now we have all of our 2020 data compiled, so I'd like to put it together and update the numbers and, you know, hopefully publish the data, but I don't have any dedicated time for that. So it's tricky to squeeze it in between clinic and, and between meetings, but that would be the goal to get that information out there. Um, although, you know, it's one of those things I think, I feel like we're moving ever closer to paired tumor normal. That's just going to become what we do ideally so that we don't have to try to guess, right? What's in the germline? Mm -hmm. What's in the tumor? How does this all play together? Um, so I feel like I need to do it fast or it's going to be outdated because we'll just be doing paired testing yeah. on everybody. But and that's a good segue. certainly was launch, interesting. Yeah. I'm going to launch this poll. What, what, what do people tend to order <laughs> who are on our call today? We'll see. But yeah, I, I, uh, wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that's where the, the field is moving uh, for a multitude of reasons. Um, you know, one, I think uh, one trial that is going to be very interesting that uh, will likely be read out um, at ASCO is going to be the uh, Olympia trial. Uh, I don't know if people are familiar with that, but it's looking at uh, uh, Limparza uh, for first line maintenance in breast cancer. Um, and it's uh, looking at uh, germline mutation carriers. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's uh, Limparza versus uh, placebo here. Let me share these. Um, so yeah, a lot of people do both. So that's good. Um, but what that means is when, when you start looking uh, for first-line maintenance, it really says you need to know at least uh, BRCA1 and 2 mutation status then really at the time you're trying to make a decision on somebody with HER2 negative breast cancer, which is what, what the, uh, the trial's on. So, which is, you know, 70 or 80% of patients. So we're kind of getting into the world where we, you know, just using that as an example, where I think we're going to need to know uh, germline status for, you know, at least for breast cancer for, you know, 80% of people right off the bat, just from that trial, because uh, they've already reported that the results uh, look good. They just haven't actually shown the results yet. So, but I know it's all getting pulled together now. Well, good. So yeah, we have a lot of people doing um, both types of tests. Um, and can you walk us through a little bit at your institution, Kristen? I mean, who does the testing and how, how it all works? I mean, the tumor and the germline? Sure. Um, so right now, the medical oncologists are ordering the tumor testing, but again, they just put in sort of an oncology genomic profile order through EPIC. Um, so it's all one centralized orderable that then goes to the precision medicine team, and they actually place the order with the lab, coordinate with pathology. Um, so I'm very removed. I don't order any of those tests, although I do review all the test results. Yeah. And then we've got a department of, I believe we're up to 11 genetic counselors now. Um, so the oncologist typically orders the, the somatic testing and then refers to the genetic counselors and we order the germline testing. We have a few doctors um, who are doing point of care testing for specific tumor types. So for instance, um, our pancreatic cancer patients, uh, the oncologists upfront will order both the somatic and the germline testing and then kind of loop us in on the back end if anything is found mm -hmm. um, that they want us to discuss with the patient. Just, you know, we're, I feel like that's another area where we're shifting and how our clinic models work and operate and trying to make sure that patients have access, um, are getting it done in a timely manner. Um, you know, with precision medicine, these, these patients are really sick and they need the information as soon as possible. Yeah. So, uh, trying to streamline that as much as we can. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know if anybody else uh, is willing to kind of share how their institution is doing tumor or normal. I mean, clearly we have uh, some people on the line that are doing, you know, both. Um, you know, and, and I'm seeing different models pop up um, and, you know, from everything from, you know, uh, surgeons or oncologists are ordering all the tumor, but, you know, the germline is still completely going through the, you know, more traditional genetic counseling pathways toward, to, you know, uh, the providers, um, you know, surgeons, oncologists, you know, APPs are just ordering everything to, you know, kind of what you just described where there's kind of like, uh, there's a decision that something's needed and then it goes through some sort of, you know, specialized team that's doing the ordering. Uh, I think genetic counselors nationally right now are trying to, you know, figure out where they fall in the whole, uh, somatic space. Um, you know, and it really does vary by institution right now. Um, are, are you know, and I don't know, um, you know, are, are genetic counseling programs right now starting to teach more on the somatic side? That's a great question. I don't know the answer. I'm not directly involved with a program um, that has, you know, curriculum about it, but it certainly would have been helpful. It was completely learn on the job for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Well, no, thank you uh, so much for presenting. That was uh, great. And feel free. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can keep chiming in. I'll, I'll show uh, the last couple um, tables because I think that really hits home on some of the concepts you were talking about, too. Um, can I ask one question? Oh, sure. Um, so, Kristen, if you had, uh, you've been doing this in your institution, but if you had a way to optimize this, in a way that pulled in all healthcare providers that are involved in the patient journey at the right time. What, where would you plug the genetic counselor into this, pro or the advanced practice nurse who's talking to patients, or you know, where does the, where's the ideal positioning for that? Since a lot of places are doing it differently, given a, you have some experience with it. Yeah, it's a great question. What I kind of wish we could do is have a genetic counselor in each clinic and, and do more of that multidisciplinary model, right? That if the patient's coming to the breast MDC, the genetic counselor's on site and can have that discussion and can place the order when everything else is going on at the same time. Um, you know, or similarly, if, if the patient's coming in to see their oncologists that, you know, if we're embedded in the clinics, we could help assist with that ordering and explaining to the patients at that point of care, because I do think the point of care testing has huge advantages in reaching more patients. We've proven that in our institution, way more patients with pancreatic cancer are getting tested now than they were when the doctors just placed a referral and the patient had to make a separate appointment and come see us. And even if they did follow through, it delayed the process, but many of them didn't even get to us. So I do think it needs to happen more upfront. What's tricky of course for us is that with such a huge system, you know, we can't all be in all places at once. And so we're still sort of a separate department, but trying to figure out how to embed ourselves in those clinics or train the people that are in those clinics, like we've done with, with the pancreatic team about the appropriate patients to test, agree upon a panel, get them kind of set up to do that ordering up front and then be available for, you know, questions, concerns, any issues that come up. Hey, TJ, it's Michelle Weaver Knowles in Missoula. Um, I have um, a couple of, I have a question and also some comments. So um, I recently got referred, so I do mostly germline and I, I get a lot of referrals pro from Providence. And um, I, 
this particular patient was a uterine cancer patient. I can't remember her exact pathology, but she met criteria for testing, for germline testing. So I tested her and sent it off and then went to try to find the pathology report and there was never any tumor testing done. So my question is, even since I've already tested her, do I need to go ahead and request like um, MSI and IHC? And I guess part of my frustration with this case is it never really got to oncology because the surgery was done by OBGYN. So I just feel like it'd be um, a great place to start like some kind of protocol that if that's the situation in pathology, that the pathologist could automatically order something like that. And just wondered if you have any comments and do I still need to do tumor testing on this patient? Yeah, good question. So it sounds like you, probably a gynoc or maybe a gynecologist did the surgery and probably that she was early stage, I'm assuming, or else she would have ended up needing some chemotherapy. Is that? Yeah, I think she was stage one, but I can't quite remember. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, which is, you know, pretty common for endometrial. And, and, and I, maybe I missed it. Did she have a um, Lynch syndrome mutation or a germline mutation? The, the results are pending. Oh, okay. They're pending now. I just yeah. tested you last week. Yeah. So, you know, I have some personal thoughts on this. Um, you know, not the views of Myriad, I should say, but, you know, I really have not uh, been blown away that uh, if germline testing is done looking for Lynch syndrome, uh, that uh, we're missing a bunch of cases of Lynch syndrome. So, uh, meaning that germline testing seems in my mind, very adequate to diagnose Lynch syndrome and really as a necessary uh, thing to diagnose Lynch syndrome in the sense that um, I can't even think of an example, um, you know, and I'm sure there's maybe some very rare case reports, but where someone had uh, in today's era of, you know, EPCAM deletion and the four, you know, main Lynch genes, uh, did not have a, if someone did not have a mutation in, in one of those, you know, five genes, let's call it, um, still was diagnosed with Lynch syndrome. And I'm talking about like a true mutation. I'm, I'm not talking about like a, if there was a VUS or something like that, that needs some exploration. I mean, that's a, that's a kind of a different thing. Uh, there's going to be some data coming out um, in that regard, uh, probably over the next couple months uh, that we've had a little early uh, snippet access to, but it really does kind of confirm that same concept that I really think that, you know, for, for, you know, colorectal and endometrial patients, if, if the question is whether they have Lynch syndrome to me, I, you know, germline testing is a great way to answer that question now. So, so that kind of gets at your, your question of, you know, does this person still need MSI or IHC after they have germline testing? So assuming that germline testing comes back negative, the likelihood that this person still has, I mean, assuming, yeah, also assuming there's not some Amsterdam, you know, one or two criteria or something that just really looks striking uh, for, for Lynch, at least. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a lot of utility at that point of doing uh, MSI or IHC. I mean, you know, unless it was being considered to use for treatment, because if it comes back normal, you're like, yeah, it's normal. And if it comes back, you know, showing, uh, you know, MSI high or something. Now you kind of get into this diagnostic odyssey of trying to explain that away when you already know the person doesn't have a germline mutation, or maybe she'll come back with a germline mutation. Okay. Kind of my, my two cents. There's not really guidelines around this, so I will also preface. So I don't know if others uh, have, have uh, thoughts there. 
But also, you know, when you do a multi-gene panel, now you actually open up the door. I mean, yeah, does this person have, you know, P10, you know, other things that could potentially also predispose to uh, endometrial cancer. So it sounds like you're working it up right. And then getting back to your, I guess, your second part, uh, the protocol, uh, Michelle, I think a lot of people, a lot of centers are setting up protocols, um, you know, not only around colorectal, but around endometrial in some way, shape or form. I mean, a lot, a lot of the bigger academic centers are just doing universal MSI and or IHC, you know, for, for any colorectal and uh, endometrial at this point. And, you know, you could argue that that's used not only for germline, but also for treatment considerations and things. Um, I've seen different protocols, um, you know, for endometrial, sometimes people just do it like under 50 or something. Um, you know, if someone needs treatment, obviously, uh, you know, especially for endometrial, I mean, you know, knowing if somebody, uh, has high tumor mutational burden or MSI, I mean, these are, these are really important things for uh, chemotherapy selection in today's era. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. And someone texted me, are germline mutations always a cancer driver? Uh, so that's a great question. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts there. I would, I would say no. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I don't know, it, you know, Krista, I mean, you know, based on your data, uh, what have you been seeing? I mean, we talk about this a lot at yeah. Molecular Tumor Board when there is something that we suspect is germline, right? So it shows up and it's at a high variant allele frequency, but it's one of those things that is it sort of an incidental finding that we're uncovering the germline mutation in the tumor, or is it actually relevant to the tumor itself? And I think our, our feeling too, is that quite often it's not the driving mutation. It's just, you know, along for the ride and we uncover it because we did the testing. Um, one thing we've been talking a lot about just maybe a little feedback for, for you guys, although I know this is not necessarily myriad specific, but um, especially when that's something like a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 mutation, we would really love to order HRD testing. Um, you know, sometimes when we find it on a, you know, non-ovarian say tumor and kind of to, to try to see, does there seem to be that same phenotype that maybe would suggest there is some relevance to it within the tumor versus just being kind of an incidental germline finding. Mm -hmm. So that's come up. Yeah. You're saying if you see a uh, somatic BRCA one or two, Correct. yeah, yeah. Yeah. To HRD. try to figure out like how important it is, mm -hmm. um, you yeah. know, to know, should we be trying to target it? Should we not be trying to target it? So that's just come up a few times among our doctors kind of off the cuff. Like, I wish we could get, mm -hmm. you know, further testing on this. Um, but it's not always yeah. of the tumor type where we have access to HRD testing yeah. at this point. No, that's a good question. I mean, I, a couple thoughts there. I mean, you know, the way our test actually works, it, um, you know, if you have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation identified in the tumor, which in these cases you would, our HRD test then reports out as positive period. Um, and then there's the genomic instability score. Um, right. now what I will say is, uh, you know, our threshold for ovarian cancer is, you know, really set to pick up about 95% of BRCA one and two mutation carriers at, at the genomic instability score of 42. Um, it should be going down in uh, some instances down to 33, which is actually the 1%, the first percentile threshold. So, I mean, the long story short is if you see a BRCA1 or 2 mutation in the tumor, yeah, that the genomic instability score is probably just going to be high at that point. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, in, in that sense, it's almost, 
you know, across cancers, we would, you would always just get a positive, um, test on our ass. What about are, something like a Paul B2 or, you know, something else in mm-hmm. the pathway, but not BRCA one and two. Yeah, we are looking at uh, all of that right now. Uh, we're also looking at it, you know, in non-ovarian, uh, tumors and we have some uh, clinical trials, um, in motion and different things, uh, across all kinds of different cancer types. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully over time, we can really expand out uh, genomic instability across, you know, all cancers would be uh, the goal. Uh, there was actually some data presented at a SGO, which was interesting. Um, I have it on my computer, but I probably shouldn't show it. <laughs> but it's, it, it looks uh, good. And it was looking at, uh, gen- and we actually, it, it was using um, some of, uh, well, it was using our data through AstraZeneca uh, studies. And it was looking at, uh, exactly what you just brought up with PALB2. So it actually looked at multiple, so the genomic instability scores across different uh, mutations in the tumor. And it was interesting, uh, RAD51C and D, um, you know, there, there were only a few events. I mean, so it looked at, uh, they looked at about 800 uh, tumor samples uh, from ovarian uh, 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 cases. And I think most of these were from the first line maintenance trial, uh, Paula. Um, and in that, um, they, uh, they identified, yeah, you know, rarely you see a, a homologous recombination, other gene uh, mutation outside of BRCA1 and 2. When you see it, um, it's kind of, it was kind of a toss-up. Um, RAD51C and D actually looked like it tended to go with a pretty high genomic instability score. Bloom, interestingly, uh, BLM, uh, had a very high um, genomic instability score, which... Um, uh, I'll come back to that in a second. PALB2, I don't think there were really enough cases um, to make any inference. Uh, but then a lot of genes like ATM and CHECK2, they actually had really low uh, scores. And that's probably because those are mutations in the tum- in the germline a lot of times. You know, what we just show, you know, saw with that uh, Steve Lincoln paper where, you know, it's more likely that if you find an ATM mutation or a CHECK2 mutation in the tumor that it's, you know, probably going to be germline in that case. And it's not really a tumor driver, getting back to this whole thing about, you know, what is a cancer driver and, and how do you determine that? Um, you know, Bloom, getting back to Bloom then, I mean, you know, things like that, and even RAD51C and D and, um, you know, a lot of these, it, it's, they're not, you know, Bloom is a, is a, a case p- example that, you know, we don't tend to think of it as a HRR gene, but actually, uh, if you have autosomal recessive bloom syndrome, it is a radio sensitivity syndrome. And actually you use chromosome breakage studies uh, to help with a diagnosis uh, like Fanconi anemia. And so there's a huge amount of genomic instability. And my gut tells me that the case, the, there was like only like two or three, but it was like off the charts on the genomic instability. And I bet you in those, uh, those cases that the other allele was also broken. And so there was uh, probably no working bloom uh, in that tumor. And, uh, hence you just had a massive amount of genomic instability. So I think, you know, and that was just literally presented a couple of weeks ago. So I think there's a lot going on, uh, to, to better understand how, you know, genomic instability or scarring, you know, and tumors and PARP inhibitors, you know, kind of relates to, uh, single gene mutations. I mean, I am a, a fan overall of, of, you know, knowing kind of that genomic scarring, you know, is it present or not like the genomic instability, uh, just because I think it gives you more information than just a hand. Well, I know it does. I mean, we've even shown some data on this. It certainly gives you more information 
to have the genomic instability scoring if you're trying to make that determination of you know PARP inhibitor therapy in particular um, you know over the HRR gene mutations like if you took 15 or 20 HRR genes just because you know your 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 catchment your net is just so much bigger to look at you're looking at the end result you're looking at the consequence of dysfunctional homologous recombination and so instead of trying to figure out the cause at that point so I mean when you're looking at the consequence, you're pulling in everything from promoter mutations to who knows what, to, you know, any like, you know, multifactorial reasons, the homologous recombination pathways not working and everything in between. So a good question. Let me show, um, and we only have a few more minutes. I do want to show the, the last couple of little uh, tables. Can everybody see this? Uh, Screenshot. Okay. So yeah, because this is a nice paper and they really did walk through a lot of different things. Uh, you know, this is kind of more general, you know, if you look at, you know, the cancers that came in, uh, you know, colorectal, breast, you know, lung, um, you know, these were some of the more common cancers that people were sending in. Um, the TRF saying, yeah, this person had a mutation identified, you know, is it in the germline? Uh, and then when you run the multi-gene panel, you see, you know, this is more kind of like standard epidemiology genetics, like what kind of distribution of mutations do you see across? So it's not really specific to, um, you know, finding the uh, mutation that was noted on a TRF, although, you know, a lot of times that was found, which is why this number is so high, because um, these numbers are, you know, insanely high, if you think about it. I mean, most of the time, colorectal cancer only has about a 10%. You know, if you took all people with colorectal cancer, you would only expect germline mutations in around 10%. So, you know, to be at 25%, it's a little off-putting, but you have to remember how these people were brought into the study. They already had a known something or other found in their tumor, uh, which gave them an a priori risk to have a higher uh, likelihood to find it in the germline. So that was interesting. Um, and then this is, uh, yeah, getting back to, uh, Kristen, what you were also talking about, you know, kind of the reasons for the difference, you know, when you're looking at tumor testing, I thought this was a, a nice table and a little scary with the, the unknown reason here. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you know, a lot of times, yeah, the gene on the germline panel just wasn't in the tumor test, you know, uh, that gets at, yeah, that, you know, if you're testing somebody for hereditary cancer, you, you know, personally, yeah, use a hereditary cancer test. <laughs> if, if your question is, does this person have a hereditary cancer mutation? Uh, don't try to answer that question uh, with a somatic uh, test. Uh, try to answer it with a hereditary test. Um, because a lot of times they're just not on the assays. And, you know, even from some of my work in the past with uh, Gardent, um, uh, when I, we had our uh, JCO paper and doing some of that work, I mean, they have, you know, Garden 360 is just a perfect example. I don't know if they changed it since, but uh, we were, we had a paper looking um, at um, uh, the mutation spectrum uh, of germ, uh, punitive germline mutations in the background of Garden 360. So it was like, you know, standard Garden testing, uh, which is cell-free DNA analysis, you know, at two to 3%, you can see the circulating tumor mutations. But, uh, you know, they came to myself and Jeff Weitzel and some of us at City of Hope and said, you know, can you help us sort some of this other stuff out? Because we're seeing all this stuff that's, you know, clearly germline. It's floating around 40 to 60% allele fraction. Um, and when we kind of dug into that test for Lynch syndrome, for instance, all they do is uh, like MSH2 exon 12, you know, so all the other, so if you, if you, 
if your question is, does this person with colorectal cancer have Lynch syndrome? And your only assay on that person is a, you know, garden 360 test, unless they change something. I mean, this was, you know, circa 2017, 2018, uh, then that was not a good test to try to even figure out, you know, uh, it's, and even back then they weren't reporting anything about germline results. And I mean, I know since that paper, they're at least doing BRCA one and two, and maybe they're alluding to uh, germline results uh, and other uh, variants. But yeah, you can see how the the breakdown of, you know, knowing what test, um, you know, ordering the right test for the right situation, I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, and then, yeah, getting, you know, to your other main point about, you know, this, the copy number variation, um, you know, all the other nuances of the test. I mean, that's all really kind of summed up nicely here. Uh, very interpretation difference. That's a big one as we kind of already got into, you know, and then unknown reason, which is a bit scary, you know, <laughs> and, and that could be for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, when you have a germline mutation, um, you know, especially if it's not driving the cancer itself, um, you know, cancer can be very disorganized, meaning that it does not need to have 46 chromosomes. It can have 80 chromosomes. It can, you know, it can have uh, 38 chromosomes. It can have anything in between. And because of that uh, potential for allele dropout, you could always potentially drop out alleles that do have the germline mutation. Um, again, that would be theoretically more in uh, you know, situations where you don't have a driver or where it's not, where that germline mutation is not driving a tumor, because you would think if the germline mutation is driving a tumor, it should be in the tumor. Um, so it's always been a concern and that might, you know, filter into some of these unknown reasons in my mind. So, yeah, plenty to learn. There's a hot field. So definitely keep, uh, exploring it, Kristen. <laughs> so, yeah. so good. Any other questions? I, I don't know if there's anything else on the chat, Shelly. Well, the chat's been pretty quiet today. Yeah, no, yeah, we had some good discussion. And I just want to say thank you so much, Kristen, for coming out um, and showing some of your data. Um, very exciting. Keep working on it. Keep doing the good work that you're doing. Um, thank you. And, Thanks for inviting me. This yeah. was really, really interesting. I did not know these talks happened. So I appreciate yeah. the invite. Yeah. And uh, so if, if you ever want to come to some other ones, Myriad Oncology Live, you can just Google it and you'll go right to it. Um, and then um, we put out all the talks uh, on on that. Uh, May 4th is the next one. Uh, Rob is on. And I don't know, Rob, feel free to unmute yourself if you're if you're listening and uh, give a little a teaser if you want. Sorry, I put you on the spot. <laughs> That's OK. Uh, you kind of said it. We're just going to talk about how hereditary cancer fits into the LGBTQ plus uh, community. And so uh, we're gonna have a couple of uh, uh, guest speakers as well. So it should be an interesting talk. Yeah, that'd be great. And then, yeah, we have a lot of new topics coming and again, building out, building out through, um, you know, I think like early July actually. So I'll, I'll get those posted. I've made a note to myself. Uh, hopefully we can get those up very soon. So, and thanks Shelly as always for running the chat. Um, but yeah, I hope everybody has a nice rest of their day. <laughs>